Welcome to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. That's What She Said is a podcast devoted to telling the stories of historical women who taught others about the Bible from the pulpit and from the page. What did they write? What did they say? And why have we never heard of many of them? Join your hosts, Dr. Marion Taylor and Kira Molman, as they dig up the words of these forgotten women and explore their lives, their influences, and their relevance for today. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Today we want to talk about forgotten women who force us to question our assumptions of the history of women and the history of Christianity as a whole. So we're going to start by talking about Jarena Lee. Marion, who was Jarena Lee? That's a great question. Uh, she's one of my favorite early black preachers. The story goes something like this. In 1811, when she was 28 years old, she was in Philadelphia. She was a freeborn black woman. And she paid a visit to her minister asking for permission to preach. So she would later publish an autobiographical account of her religious experience, and it includes a lot of her sermon ideas and actual preaching, I would say. But so she went to the minister and she said, could I preach? I feel God has called me to preach. And he said, well, you can pray and you can exhort others to faith, but the Methodist Church does not allow women to preach. And they were part of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So she accepted that and went home and uh, got married, had two children. And eight years later, uh, something again happened in her life. So she was back at the same church. The minister who had said she could not preach was now a bishop, and he was attending the same service. It was an interesting service because the man who was appointed to preach on Jonah chapter 2, which is, and the verse was, salvation is of the Lord. And he lost, well, she would say he lost the spirit. He fumbled. So she stood up and started preaching on Jonah chapter 2. And she said uh, this, and I think uh, it's, it's a very lovely kind of um, thing, she says, I am this Jonah, right? That I am like Jonah. And because I'm like him, because I was called to preach, as he was called to preach to Nineveh, but he didn't want to go. So she looked back on those eight years saying, I was disobeying the call. So she stood up and preached a very forceful sermon for 45 minutes. And at the end of it, she was afraid. She said, are they going to kick me out of the church? And instead, the minute the bishop said, you are called to preach. And that was her call to become an itinerant preacher. At this point, her husband had died. She had two young children. And she had to find someone to look after the children. But she did. And then she went on these long preaching tours that are described in her book. And she goes to town after town. She preaches in churches. She preaches in homes. Uh, she preaches at town halls. Sometimes she's accepted. Other times she's 
not. So it was not an easy life and she had to earn money. So sometimes she would take up a sewing job while she was preaching to earn enough money to feed herself and to travel. So she went by foot, by boat, on horses. So she was a very interesting woman and had a very long preaching career. And I, I really, um, I'm inspired by her. She was a freed woman, but her parents were so poor. At seven, they sent her out to work as a full-time live-in servant. So that was a hard experience for her. And she had no, her parents had no understanding of the faith. And so neither did she, but she had a very strong sense of right and wrong. So in her autobiography, she talks a lot about her sense. She lied to her mistress. She felt very guilty. She continued to do bad things and she had a lot of guilt. And then she heard, she felt she should go to this Methodist church. She felt the conviction of sin. So her, her conversion experience was over a long period of time and, and she had such a deep experience of and realization of sin that she really wanted to drown. And at some point, several times, she almost took her life and felt, no, I can't do this. So her, her background story is almost as interesting as where it ended. And so I feel very encouraged by her and even her sense of call. Her, she sensed that God said to her, go preach the gospel. And she, like the prophets of old, like Moses and Jeremiah and others say, why? Why me? I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't know how to speak, right? She says, no one will believe me. Um, but she listened and uh, she said, well, um, God says you can do this. And so then she had a vision of herself, of standing in front of a, a, a pulpit with a Bible open, and then she saw herself preaching from that pulpit. So um, that night when she went to sleep, she apparently started preaching a sermon in her sleep. So it wasn't just a dream because she woke herself up and everyone else in the house. And that was eight years before she actually got to preach in a church in, in that real sense. So it's a very interesting journey in terms of her call. But in her biography, she talks about how people don't think women should preach. And then she warns readers and she says, oh, how careful ought we to be, lest through our bylaws of church government and discipline, we bring into disrepute even the word of life. So she says, if women are called to preach the word of life and we say they can't, that's, a, that's wrong. So, and then she goes in to justify her sense of why women should preach. And she says, why should it be impossible or thought improper for a woman to preach seeing a savior died for the woman as well as for the man? If the man may preach because the savior died for him, why not the woman, seeing he died for her also? Is he not a whole savior instead of half a one? As those who want to hold it wrong for a woman to preach would seem to make it appear. So she has this, I would like to meet this woman, right? She, she seems to have this kind of dark sense of humor and, and she just can turn an argument. Um, and then she goes on in her journal, or autobiography and says, did not Mary first preach the risen savior? 
And is not the doctrine of the resurrection the very climax of Christianity? Hangs not our hope on this, as St. Paul argued? Uh, so, you know, uh, she goes through this and she goes, you know, the women, women were at the cross, they were at the tomb, they preached the resurrection, and all these other women preached. And so she says, as they were called to preach, so we are called to preach. So it's an interesting argument for women's preaching coming from a woman who had no theological education, but read the Bible. And was shaped by those biblical examples. Absolutely, because she she did not have any women preachers as examples. I mean, there were a few other women who were exhorters and would pray and be visit in people's home. There was supposed to be between the first awakening in seven, 1740 in the, in the U.S. and the second awakening, um, there was supposed to be a, about 100 American women who were out preaching the gospel. So their stories are now being recovered and told, but it's a history that we had forgotten about. It's so interesting when you get into the biographies of these women, they often resist the call at first, but that's part of kind of identifying with the prophetic story that you always have a prophet who at first says, no, I shouldn't go, or you have a leader that says, I'm not good enough. Moses says, no, God, like, please choose somebody else. And a lot of these women, they'll even write, I wasn't sure I was allowed to do this. But like this woman, it kind of exploded out of her, even in her sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she says, she identifies with the call of Jeremiah, and she says, I have a fire in my bones, right? That she had to keep under rap for eight years. And then when she preaches about Jonah, she said, I was wrong to do that. But she was obeying the minister. Could we talk a bit more about these? There's this trajectory of there are biblical women who are preaching. And that moves us into the early church where, um, like Jarena Lee says, Mary was the first person to proclaim the resurrection. And then you actually have women leading in the early church that we don't always think about or haven't known about. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that? Yes, I was uh, looking at a book this week called Women Preaching, Theology and Practice Through the Ages. And uh, the author, Yunju Mary Kim, talks about she integrates the history of women preachers into a theology of women preaching today. And she talks about how um, the New Testament itself contains lots of examples of women preaching. And she, it's, it's interesting that the, the arguments she uses are very similar to the ones people like Jarena Lee does, right? So you mention Mary and the other women at the cross, even the mother of Jesus and uh, and then you have other women in Paul's ministry that are following Paul and supporting Paul and involved in his ministry. And then you have evidence uh, of early Christian um, stories that may be legendary, like the, the fact that Mary Magdalene, there's a story that Mary Magdalene went to preach in France, for goodness sakes, right? So... Whether that was true or not, there, that is a testimony to the fact that they thought women were preaching. 
And we have early heresies that had women preachers uh, that that the um, the Orthodox theologians talk about these heretical groups. The Montanists, for example, had women prophets. But I think also really important evidence that people in the 1800s and the 19th century didn't know about. The, they didn't have the archaeological evidence that we now have that shows that women were doing lots of things in church that later they were thought not to be able to do. And we have um, a, this a scholar named Karen Jorgensen presents a convincing case that ancient mosaics, paintings, statues, dedicatory inscriptions, funerary epitaphs, all altar pieces with beautiful en engravings, they have pictures of women in leadership positions. And there is a word, they often use the um, expression women have their hands lifted up in the orans, in the praying position. And often they're, they look to be celebrating Eucharist. So they, um, these paintings and um, beautiful sketches in the catacombs of women doing things that later theologians say, oh, sorry, women have never done them, is new historical evidence for the fact that in the first three centuries, women were doing a lot of things in terms of leadership in the church. And one reason they were doing it is most churches were house churches where women, it was thought to be appropriate for women to be a leader in the house. And one of the books I read said, like, if it's a woman's house church, she was probably preaching at that church. I mean, we don't know that, but it could possibly be. So I think the historical evidence, ranging from literature to works of art, reveals that women disciples of Jesus continued their preaching ministry after experiencing the risen Christ. So I think that's quite interesting to me anyway, that we have all this new evidence, historical evidence of things that early women did uh, that are cited by people like Jerina Lee from the Bible, but then we have things outside the Bible that confirm the fact that women's roles in the early church were quite expanded. Even when Tertullian preaches that sermon to women and blames them, says, you, know, you are all like Eve, and you should go about in garb, like gray, dour garb, because you were all daughters of Eve and responsible for sin— like, what is it? Why is he doing that? Like, these are all women who've dedicated their lives to serving Christ in the church. And he, he's, he's uh, suspect of them. Like, they're wearing loose clothes. And he, or he's saying maybe they can be pregnant under their clothing. And, like, he doesn't, I think he doesn't trust women. He doesn't like women. But, um, you know, sometimes even people who say things against women, like women should not be doing this, suggest that maybe they were doing things like that. So I think we have early, very early evidence of women doing things uh, in the church. And, um, but soon and soon after, like in various centuries that follow, we have actual examples of women preaching way before people like Jarena Lee. Like who? Well, the, the early Quakers for, are, are certainly some, and uh, a Katerina Zell, who was the wife of Matthias Zell, a reformer, she preached a 45-minute sermon at the graveside. Um, Martin Booser, who was a renowned uh, theologian and preacher, preached the sermon 
And then she stood up and preached another sermon. And after all, it was her husband in the grave, so no one stopped her. But she felt authorized to preach and, uh, and felt she had a message, not just for women, but also for men. So uh, those stories of early women preaching are very surprising to me. And that's why it calls us to rethink our history of women and preaching. I think both of us were raised in churches where women didn't preach. And I never imagined that a woman could preach for a long time. And I certainly didn't know that there were women for centuries and centuries that had been preaching. We have an example of a woman, a Catholic woman, who preached uh, at the, in the Counter-Reformation, that she went out, ministered to women, and preached, and was very confident that the uh, hard verses about women not preaching, not teaching, and having authority over men and women keeping silent did not mean she shouldn't preach because she felt called by God's spirit to go out and preach. And a lot of women in the history of women preachers seem to use that as their authority, right? That they they feel a call, they're filled with the spirit, and therefore they can preach. And that's not just in Quaker circles. There are Lutheran women and Catholic women, and it's interesting to see how much overlap there is in their narratives of how they're describing their authority. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by um, Julia Foote, who was a contemporary of Drina Lee, and also a, f- a black woman in America who was born to freed parents. And she writes, um, when Paul said, Help those women who labor with me in the gospel, referring to Philippians 4, verse 3. He certainly meant that they did more than to pour out tea. So I read that a few years ago um, in a history of preaching class where we did talk about women preachers. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of this history that came before and Julia Foote was just one of the many names of women who were preaching and who felt like they could. You mentioned before that women pushed back from their sense of call. And I think one of the reasons they pushed back is they knew how hard the call would be. And uh, I think they were harassed. They were you know, pushed out of town. Uh, they were poor. And, and I think, well, if that was a hard call to realize you are going to be called into a ministry that people think, what What are you doing? Women shouldn't be doing this. And there, there is a history of the prophet being the person that no one wants to listen to. Well, that's and true. the person who is going to be harassed. But for most of this history, the role of a pastor was a really good role. A preacher was someone who was respected in society, but for a woman to be doing that, they they were demonized often. Often people would say stuff like they are seized by demon spirits or that's what's going on. There's no way that they could actually be doing this. You have a story of a very strange woman preacher. (laughs) I like this story. I had never heard about sleep preaching. Well, it's interesting because 
Jarena Lee kind of is the predecessor to that kind of thing as well, right? So Helena Kottinen, who is known as the Finnish sleep preacher, she was born in 1871. And before she would preach, she would lie down and be visited by the spirit and kind of seem to be preaching in her sleep. And this started with her call at the age of seven, I think. She she sent, she had a dream, an affirmation from Christ, where Christ said to her, when the walls of Zion have fallen and the shepherds have degenerated, so the Lord will take care of his herd, even though, even through his weak servants, because if they become silent, then even the rocks will shout, you, Helena, are such a rock. But it's interesting because she also writes about the, the power of the spirit can be used as the prophesying power, but it can also be deceptive. And she doesn't shy away from talking about that which I think is interesting because a lot of women seem to use the Holy Spirit as their authority. But she says, you have to be careful because what if it's the wrong spirit that's talking through you? And I think that gives, for me reading that, that gives more credibility to what she was doing, that she recognized that it's tricky to discern which spirit is talking to you. And how do I think so many women receive that criticism too. I was going to um, I, I was going to talk about for a minute an article I found yesterday. Um, it was an, an a, it was an article in a journal in the Reformed Quarterly Review in 1882, written by a man named Reverend Cyrus Court, and he, on his tombstone it said he was a poet, a historian, a faithful pastor, and a bu- public spirited citizen. And I thought, wow, I, he must have been a really a, great guy. A really great guy, but also controversial, right? So he writes an article called Women Preaching Viewed in the Light of God's Word and Church History. And this is 1882. So he knows there are women. He actually says it's estimated two years ago that about 100 female preachers and evangelism evangelists are in America. So that's about right. Like he, so he knows that there are women preaching, but he casts them off as sectarian. He said, most of them are Quakers, Unitarians, and Universalists. But they're not all that. And, and certainly um, Methodist women are mainstream Orthodox Christian women in that sense. But he says, the spirit of the times seem to be encouraging women to go out and do new things. Are we as a church going to let them do these new things? And he says uh, very strongly, for my part, I'm obliged to adopt the view that women should not preach. And he says, after a careful examination of the subject in light of God's word, I am compelled to endorse most emphatically the deliverance of the Presbyterian Church on this topic in 1832. So this is the time that Jarena Lee and Julie Foote were preaching. And I quote, Meetings of pious women by themselves for conversation and prayer are entire, we entirely approve. But let not the inspired prohibition of the great apostle Paul, as is found in Corinthians and in Timothy, 
be violated. He said, and this is the clincher, to teach and to exhort or to lead us in prayer in public, and he says promiscuous assemblies, and that just means a mixed assembly. So both men and Bo- women. So for women to teach, exhort, or lead in prayer in a mixed church assembly is clearly forbidden in, in the Holy Oracles. So he goes on to say, to use the same kind of interpretive principle that I use, he says you need to interpret the clear or use the clear to interpret the unclear. So for him, it's clear what Paul says. Women should keep silent. That's clear. So when it's unclear about the evidence of women's roles in the gospel or women's roles in Paul's ministry, that's unclear. I would turn the argument around, as most women, I think, (laughs) and men who are supporting women and preaching would, and say, wait a minute, Paul is very clear you know, when a woman prays, she should have her head covered, not that she shouldn't pray, right? Or that the idea of women keeping silence. The women in Corinth and the men in Corinth were new Christians, and they also have a whole history of controversy going on. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, it's a messy situation he's writing into. And it seems to be that these women, well, we know they, they were disrupting the service with their questions. And they, unlike their husbands, they were not educated. And they, and so as uneducated women, sometimes they were asking questions that were inappropriately for the setting. They were inappropriate for the setting. And so Paul is saying, keep silent because... We need order in our worship services. And so it's not that they were uh, stupid women. They were just, they were, some people think they were so excited with the new freedom that they had in Christ, where Paul is talking about in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. So all of a sudden you have all this new freedom that women had not had before. And so in that excitement, they were just kind of overflowing with enthusiasm and causing some chaos. So stop it. Uh, You know, there were other things Paul is saying, don't do this in a worship setting. So when, so the context of his instruction to keep silent seems to be for in that particular early church where things were not, where worship was disorderly. And that's why when you go back to say, are there other examples of women being silenced? We can't find those examples. Women are encouraged to speak, to go out, like the woman of Samaria. She goes out and tells the good news of the gospel. Well, she's looked as a model for all of us to go out that way, so she's not silent. So the women in Jesus' ministry were not silent, and Paul had women He encouraged Aquila and Priscilla, like Priscilla was a teacher, probably a better teacher than her husband. Uh, We have this, um, at the end end of Romans, there's a list of many women, including Junia, who seems to be an apostle. So there, there are examples in the New Testament of women in leadership positions that counters the idea that women should keep silent. So that's where I would differ from this early minister who says, 
women keep silent is where that's clear. We know that it's clear and women shouldn't teach. That's clear. Uh, interpret all the other texts in light of that. But we have more examples of women in leadership and speaking and doing evangelism and teaching and preaching than we do women, the, the one verse that says about women silent being silenced. It's good to see the other side, right? Because that's the majority. So the majority voice is no, women are stepping out of the home. They're taking on ministries they shouldn't. And we're suspect of women preaching. I wanted to talk about one other woman from the same time period as Jarena Lee, and she was a privileged woman, a privileged white woman. Her father and grandfather had both been elected to Congress. Her father was a, a congressman several times over and a prominent lawyer. So she's from a, a family that has money and privilege and status. So skip ahead. She was born in 18, 1788. So Think about a Sunday morning, January 8th, 1827. Packed into the main floor and gallery of the Hall of the House of Representatives, hundreds of people murmured with anticipation and rustled in their seats. Others stood in the aisles. Some had waited for hours. And anybody who hadn't come 60 minutes before the event were denied entry. And it's interesting that even the president at the time had to sit on the floor because he didn't have a seat. And apparently they covered the speaker's podium with red silk. And people came because it was advertised as a woman is going to preach to Congress. And people thought, a woman preaching to Congress? Who is she? I want to hear this woman. So they were curious. They were interested. But mostly, I think they came out of curiosity, right? And so uh, the, the paper, the Washington, D.C.'s paper, the National Intelligencer, had publicized that a woman preacher had been invited to deliver a sermon to Congress. And uh, so people came. And the crowd watched as she ascended the podium. And um, in the newspaper the next day, it described this woman, Harriet Livermore, as above average height, dressed in a style so simple and neat that you could have assumed she was a Quaker. But she wasn't a Quaker. She had had quite a, uh, she had had a, a conversion experience and tried many churches and couldn't find a denomination that she found fitted her. So she went off on her own with this fire in her bones and call to preach, right? And so on this day at Congress, and she preached three or four times before Congress, not just once. I mean, she's a very famous preacher. Uh, she prayed, she sang, and she opened with a scripture passage she had elected for the occasion. And it was taken from the final words of King David, who says, he that rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And so she preached a very long 90-minute sermon that brought many in the congregation to tears and she had a very authoritarian, uh, authoritative style of preaching that apparently President Adams didn't like and criticized mm -hmm. her for later. But she was, she was a very powerful speaker. So this is Harriet Livermore. And uh, like, like Jarena Lee, she had this fire and felt compelled to preach and interpret scripture. And she was one of the many women converted through the Great Awakenings. Um, 
And during the Second Great Awakening, which was 790 to 1844, hundreds of Christian women felt, especially from Baptist and Methodist traditions, felt a call to preach and responded to this call. So I'm interested in Livermore because she is an interpreter of the Bible and published a lot. So the question is, how did she, you know, uh, finance a, a, her career as a single woman? And uh, she did it in many ways. She borrowed money from relatives and friends, and then that grew um, kind of tired after a little while. <laughs> and she did other things. She wrote books to sell them to get enough money to go on her next preaching mission. And so later on, uh, her theology got a little questionable. She became influenced by the group called the Millerites that accept, expected the imminent return of Jesus. And she took herself to Israel to wait for Jesus' return several times. At one point, she's, uh, she was there for four years in the 60s. So she's a, and then she was very poor. Uh, she was a very eccentric preacher at that point, and she peddled pills, like patent pills. And um, in the end, I mean, this is the very sad end of her story, is this woman of wealth and privilege ends up in a poorhouse and dies in the poorhouse. But I'm, I'm convinced that she went off the rails because she had nobody to talk to. And she didn't have any church support or people to test out her ideas with. And she was influenced by some people on the edge. But her early interpretations of the Bible are very solid. In fact, I find her publication from um, her first book to be a very solid biblical theology. And it's called A Scriptural Evidence in favor of female testimonies in meetings for the worship of God. So it's a, it's a book that defends women's preaching. And she takes, uh, she writes it in the form of, of letters to her friend, Julia. I don't know if Julia was real or imagined, but Julia had questions about whether a woman should preach. And so she preached with her pen to do, dear Julia. And, you know, she, she writes, I mean, she's a lawyer's daughter, right? So she, she, she has control over words. She says, how can any rational thinking Christian think that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 meant all Christian women should not speak in meetings of worship? Because she goes back and says, did he not three chapters earlier talk about women's praying and prophesying? Would this holy man undertake to challenge God, what God said in Joel, that in the last days women should prophesy? So she's got this edge to her. And so she, go, she looks at the difficult verses in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, that says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted for them to speak, as says the law. So she goes through the law. She says, well, where does it say in the law, which she understands as the Old Testament, where does it say that women should keep silent? So she starts in Genesis and goes through the Bible book by book and has one example of another after another of very pious women who were not silent but spoke a lot and certainly didn't weren't submissive women like Sarah, for example. She said, like, Sarah tells Abraham what to do. She's hardly submissive. 
But then there are more convincing examples to her, like Miriam, who, you know, uh, had a very important role in her brother's, in saving her brother's life. And then at, in Exodus was there at the crossing of the sea and is later called a prophetic voice. So you have Miriam, you have Deborah, who's a leader, you have Hannah and Huldah, who's a prophetess. And so she said, these women spoke, these women had leadership roles. Uh, she's especially drawn to Huldah and she describes her prophetic words as solemn preaching, sharp as a two-edged sword. So she's, she looks at Hulda um, kind of with sort of a jealous look. She said, people listen to Hulda. And she said, when I'm out there, they treat me like dirt. <laughs> because she, she says, uh, contemporary Huldas are looked upon as disturbers in the churches and purveyors of wildfire. She said, that's not how they treated Hulda. Why do they treat us that way? So... She's a very interesting woman. She puts a lot of weight on uh, the prophecy in Joel 2, 28 and 29. She begins her book with that. And preaching with her pen, she asks, in, you know, does God speak in irony? On what ground then are you ministers saying women should keep silent in meetings of worship? She says, let God be the judge. I condemn no man. <laughs> so she's... Um, then after going through the whole Old Testament, finding lots of examples of women in leadership positions, she goes to the New Testament where she has lots of examples of gospel women proclaiming the good news. And she loves Luke's presentation of Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna, and the woman of Samaria and Mary Magdalene. And I love her portrait of Jesus because she's, and I'm just going to read it here because it, it's just so beautiful. She says, the divine savior who ever manifested the tenderest care of the female part of his heritage. Like Jesus loved women, she says. In all his communication to his disciples or public preaching, I do not recollect a single intimation of an inequality between the sexes in his church, nor can I find him ever reproving a female for too much zeal for the gospel. So she says, Jesus permitted women to accompany him in his travels from city to city and village to village and he, as he went preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So after surveying, you know, the Gospels and Acts, where you have Philip's daughters prophesying, uh, she concludes that the strength of the opposers to female preaching lies in the charge he give, Paul gives respecting women at Corinth and directions to Timothy. So there was just those two difficult texts. And she says, both these classic proof texts can be dismantled when we read within their ancient context and properly understood. So this is 1824. And when I read her book, and you can find her book on Google Books, as you can almost all of these early writings that are not, co not copyrighted, so you can read them and you think, this is an amazing book. So I think about my own training in theology that I really had to wrestle with my own views, uh, like what do I do with Paul's teaching here? And I was never guided to read somebody like Livermore and her arguments, which I find very compelling, even though they're 200 years old. So that's why these women, in my view, are worthy of recovering. They are forgotten mothers of faith upon whose shoulders we can stand. 
So as I think even as we've talked today, you, we've found there are threads of continuity that people from you know the 17th century, even the 15th century and before in the early church are talking about the witness of the women in the gospels, right? That women were at the tomb and were the first to announce the good news of the gospel. And so um, that's a motivate that, that gives permission for other women to go out and tell the good news of the gospel. Or the woman of Samaria who Jesus sends out to preach, right? Women can be evangelists and preachers. So all of these arguments and p evidences of women's roles in leadership have been found and re by interpreters throughout history, but we've forgotten those arguments. And we, so every generation of women has had to kind of go back and start from the beginning. Jarena Lee didn't know anybody before her, and I, I don't think Harriet Livermore knew Jarena Lee. So they had to figure these arguments out. And I think it came from this very dramatic experience with God and, a, and a, a sense of a call to preach the gospel. And then out of their sense of call, they read the Bible saying, God has called other women. He has called me. I must preach. So it's that fire in their bones that, you know, that's why I love these women. I mean, they are courageous. They are courageous to, to preach and teach to people who think, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing as women? But they are doing what they felt called to do and they are women who model for us that we can do similar things and that we're not the first to have to try to do it no no and we have to they had to balance like what do you do with two children when you're out preaching right they had to find relatives to look after those kids while they were gone um, and it also i mean the story of livermore also is a warning to say don't go out alone, right? She was a loner and she was misguided and got off the rails. So when you are doing ministry, you need an accountability group and you need a church, I think, and you need good theology to kind of guide you as to what's right and what's wrong. And, and I think that's also a lesson that we can continue to hold on to from these women. It's also a warning to the church community to say, like, as you said, Harriet Livermore, when she started, she was preaching so faithfully, and she was doing excellent exegesis, and she was a good interpreter of scripture, and sadly, she did not have a church community that could recognize and steward her gifts well, right? She was kind of seen more as a curiosity to instead to imagine what her life would have looked like if she had had the support of a community that could have encouraged and nourished those gifts. Mm -hmm. Or even if her family would have supported her to say, yes, you have a call, we'll support you. That would have been a wonderful gift. I mean, you picture her trying to patent, trying to peddle patent pills in Jerusalem. How was that going, right? It would be a terrible life. Yeah, it's an awful life. So, yeah. So these women are great examples and for good and for bad. But I think overall what they do is call us to think again about our, how we remember our history, that there are women who we should remember as, 
as that we can say these are our foremothers of faith and they can inspire us to do even greater things than we can ask or imagine your discussion of um, not going out alone reminded me of two women um, Catherine Evans and Sarah Cheevers so they're in the 1600s and I just love this story because they went out together and they actually ended up they were trying to get to Alexandria and then got caught during the Roman Catholic Inquisition and so then they got stuck in Malta in a, in a prison cell and they thought they were going to die there but they wrote they wrote an account of their experience, even though their jailers would come in and search for their paper and pen, somehow they would hide it in their cell and then publish those stories. And I love the idea of these two middle-aged women um, stuck in a prison cell together and trying to write down their experience as a testimony so that it could somehow encourage other people in the future. Mm-hmm. And they did try and preach to their inquisitors, right, to yeah. explain yeah. why they should be out there preaching, right. right? They said, well, we have examples in the scripture, and they, they, the inquisitors just didn't really understand what these women were doing preaching. Thank you. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wickliffecollege.ca slash podcast.